right, just a fair warning. I am having seasonal allergies. Um, I get this like once a year. And so if I go into a coughing fit, um, I'll probably just take a quick drink and hopefully that will help out. But uh, yeah, I, I, that could happen. But let's go to Lord our God in prayer. Father God, we thank you yet again that you have given us a day to look to you, To well, every day we look to you, but a day to especially focus upon you, to hear your word in community, to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you just bless us and edify us and um, instruct us both in Sunday school, but also in worship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so... I'm going to today, with the permission of Paul Forrester, a couple of weeks ago, he let me know that he was only going to get to the first couple of verses of chapter 12. So if I wanted to uh, cover a little bit of chapter 12, that would be fine. But uh, So I'm going to touch on that a little bit today, but really I'm going to be in chapter 13, which is a chapter that for the first seven verses... Uh, if we're being honest, it's it's not necessarily written, I'm sure, as we would want it to be for the idol of our political hobby horses. Uh, I want to just start off with this quote from John Calvin at the beginning on this idea of, uh, this is the political chapter and the government chapter. And this is what John Calvin had to say on the matter. Owing to the false opinion of our excellence that every person entertains, there is no one who patiently endures that others should rule over him. Those who cannot avoid the necessity do indeed reluctantly obey those who are above them, but inwardly they fret and they rage because they think they suffer wrong. The Apostle Paul cuts off all disputes of this kind by demanding that all who live under the yoke shall submit to it willingly. So he means that they must not inquire whether they deserve that lot or a better one, for it is enough that they are bound to this condition. So um, that, that will be a good summary quote uh, with some of the things that we'll hear in chapter 13. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, this is a popular idol in our day. I think it's always probably been a popular idol, but especially in our day. Uh, but it's good that Paul Forster... Um, was, uh, he, um, wanted to, he didn't finish the chapter in part because most scholars, most theologians actually argue that chapter 12 and chapter 13 of this text are actually interconnected. That the intro to chapter 12 links to the conclusion of chapter 13. You also see that in the next two weeks when Pastor does chapter uh, 14 and Keith Turner does chapter 15 that those two chapters have a lot of um, unity in them. Uh, when we look at Scripture, we don't want to uh, make the mistake of thinking the chapters are always split at maybe at the point that it makes most sense. Um, and so, um, and when it goes to the matter of politics, I think uh, as a matter of introduction to what we'll be covering, what did the Jews want Jesus to be more than anything else? Yeah, they wanted to be a strong political leader who liberated them from the Romans, who uh, cast them down. And, and frankly, they were fairly unimpressed, the majority, 
with the fact that Jesus uh, struck down the enemy of death and sin and fear, anxiety, and rose again to new life because they were so awaiting the liberation from Rome. And that political idol is a powerful one. It's a powerful one that's seen throughout Scripture. We can think of even in the wilderness and when the uh, Israelites are with Moses, they're grumbling about him as a leader. Uh, they... Um, and then in the Davidic line, and obviously King Saul and such, there's, there's bad leaders, there's, there's uh, leaders who did not know the Lord, but also even in good leaders, there's groaning. And um, we, we really do, as Calvin's quote pointed out, uh, this is kind of a biblical idea, but an idea that is consistent throughout redemptive history that, uh, uh, politically speaking, um, it is a... Uh, powerful idol of ours to want politics exactly the way we want it to want our leaders in the exact way that we want them and we grumble under uh, them. Um, It's actually funny. Uh, A lot of scholars will end up taking what we'll eventually look at in Romans chapter 13, the first seven verses, and they try to make arguments that maybe it was added after the fact. There's there's no historical... um, warrant for that, but they uh, they get so frustrated with what's being said. And so with that, let us uh, kind of read chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. I'm going to read them out loud so we all can hear it, and we'll see how this serves as a textual transition that leads us into uh, 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on it, to the wrath of God. Oh, wait, live peaceably with all, sorry. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, uh, says the Lord, uh, to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, uh, this textual transition um, opens in uh, verse 12.9 with the idea of let your divine love be genuine. Uh, would be kind of appropriate uh, way to translate it, or even a more precise translation of, of kind of what's happening in the Greek there. Let your divine love be unhypocritical. That this list is helpful to make uh, your walk in the Christian life an unhypocritical walk. A walk that is consistent with the salvation that you've been given. It's not, uh, it's not, he, he's not uh, necessarily saying this like, um, like he's on the top of Mount Sinai. He's saying that this is, this is a way to walk in which you're not walking with hypocrisy. Um, it's a, it's a matter of this is what authentic love for God begins to look like. An authentic intimacy. Um, and, uh, yeah. Now, for the original audiences, 
when they would have read verses like 12, 12, 12, 14, 12, 16 to 21, um, what events had they kind of already, we, co- we covered this very early on in the series, but would they have already endured in their lives thus far when they're hearing things about um, bless those who persecute you and, and, um, and essentially uh, uh, forgive, do not avenge yourself? What, what things have they already endured, this audience, in their lifetime? If we remember uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, we know that Emperor Claudius, um, as was pointed out uh, near the beginning of the series, had already kicked out for a period all the Jewish Christians in the Roman city. Uh, imagine if Donald Trump kicked out all the Christians in Washington, D.C., who had been Christians for over 10 years. Um, you know, I, th- I think people would be ready to riot. Uh, they'd be unhappy. And these Jewish Christians have now returned to Rome. We know they've returned to Rome through something we'll see later on in chapter 16 of this letter. Uh, the decree, the Jewish Christian decree of uh, Acts 18 has been rescinded. But they're now coming back. And they've already suffered politically. They've suffered at great cost, this audience of uh, Paul, they, they, um, they already have some stake in the political game. They've already seen serious injustice in the, in the political arena. Um, it's not only divided their church and the fact that the Gentiles re- were able to remain and to continue on with that church, but now that they come back, there's a little bit of a Gentile Jewish schism that will get talked about also in the next chapter more, but has been talked about throughout the book of Rome, uh, Romans. But there is this political undercurrent that they have uh, suffered through. So um, that original audience would have uh, had this in mind. They universally could not stand the emperor, I'm sure. But also something that hopefully the original audience would pick up on is the fact that Paul here is actually echoing the Sermon on the Mount. He's echoing uh, Christ in a sermon when uh, he says, bless those who persecute you. Uh, Claudius during the, the, Nero is coming up, 64 AD. Uh, Claudius, you're talk, we're talking about the late 40s when the Jews were kicked out. And, um, and Claudius is, he's so... Uh, I don't know if, I don't think Nero was emperor yet. Uh, but Nero is where the the death, life and death persecutions will start taking place. That'll begin in 64 AD. Um, so, also, um, yeah. Uh, so, go leading into the next, uh, if you're following along the outline, roughly 10 years after Romans is penned by Paul, what will come beginning in 64 AD? That Roman persecution. Uh, eventually the fact that these very Romans who re- are reading this letter, who are reading chapter 13, are going to be struck down in death. And when is the time that Rome finally starts, stops killing Christians? How long does it go on? Yeah, the Edict of Milan, 313. It's 240 years off and on of persecution. Um, and so this is a big ask for the original audience. Um, we think in our own day with our own uh, political situation, we have it bad. And um, just the original audience uh, 
puts uh, shame to that because they uh, they suffered and endured uh, great persecution in obedience to chapter 13. Now, in um, working, this also illustrates a larger point in working through Romans and um, other scripture that uh, I know I'm a guy who brings up history a lot here, and history can be boring to a lot of people. Um, but we, we want to be able to, when we read texts, to appreciate the fact of if we were in 58 AD and in the shadow of the Colosseum, would how we understand this text be relatable to that individual when they first received it? And so when it comes to we pivot to 13, which we're about to read here, um, I think it's just helpful to understand the original people who received this letter. Um, it's speaking to a person who already knows more persecution than, Lord willing, we will ever endure uh, for the sake of the gospel. But... Um, and uh, and ultimately, many of these people who first received this letter will pay for uh, their faith in their life. Uh, so with that, let us read uh, chapter 13. <clears throat> let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists, the authorities resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay all that is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... Uh, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So, um, Paul begins uh, chapter 13. Verse one, um, with he he switches his audience again uh, on who is duty bound to the obligation. He he zooms out to the biggest lens. He he basically says everyone with a soul in the Greek uses the word asuke, um, and you'll find most translations say everyone, everybody in response to this. Uh, he he has uh, this is a general um, 
This is a broad lens. It doesn't just, uh, he doesn't envision our leaders to always be Christian leaders. This is a command of uh, be subject that's a universal, um, part of the natural law, if, uh, if looking for a kind of a theology term. Um, and so that's a good time to kind of, for us to ask ourselves the following co- uh, question. What covenant would we go to in order to see God's institution of governments? What? Yeah, the Noahic. Um, might be tempted to try to say the Mosaic or the Edemic, but actually the Noahic covenant is the one that is uh, most explicitly the idea of governments. Why can't it be the Mosaic? Because that's a, it's a government singular, though, too. Um, that, that, that has no bearing on, um, it's a single government. Uh, this passage talks about, for instance, the sword. Uh, anybody know where the sword is first mentioned in Scripture? Well, where in Genesis? Yeah, chapter 3. We have the Lord. He, after Adam and Eve have falled, uh, fallen, He makes them a covering. He removes them from the garden. And He puts His sword. Uh, it's uh, with the cherubim and the sword as a restriction for them to return to Eden. And so God is... Um, it's a... Uh, he drove out man east of the Garden of Eden is the verse, and he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. And so we, we can't go to Moses in order to see the permission for governments because it was one nation. We have to go to the Noahic Covenant, uh, more explicitly chapter 9. And um, what are some of the reasons the, the institution of government might also need a covenant? Of governments, plural, being the hint. Yeah, but also, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely. Um, man is very awful before the flood. Uh, in this anthropomorphic phrase, not that God, uh, you know, listen to Mark Anderson's series on the attributes. It talks about how God regretted that He made man. Uh, man's in a very bad state. Um, I had a professor at Gonzaga who um, once lived through anarchy. He actually uh, was raised in Germany during um, uh, the rise of Nazism. He was still a young boy uh, at the end of the war. He was 10 at the end of the war. And he said, and, and he's written several uh, books on Hitler and, and how terrible uh, his rise to power was and really explaining the framework. Actually, the professor, I just found he died. Uh, but... Um, he, I remember him telling me that the, the scariest time for him was actually in the period where the Nazis were removed from power in his city and there was this period of anarchy that existed um, that was just far scarier than even the worst of the war that he saw when there was this huge power vacuum where literally he was afraid that his neighbors would kill him or uh, murder him and steal and pillage and so... And, um, that anarchy itself, we used to argue it's the most totalitarian of totalitarian governments because uh, it's just a uh, you know, survival of by any means necessary. And so man was pretty bad pre-flood. And, um, and God wielded his sword uh, in a pretty big way in Genesis in the Noahic flood. Only one family survives. 
Of course, even in that one family surviving, not everyone in that family uh, was worthy of it. Ham is ultimately cursed. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah. And so we had never been given license to before the Noahic Covenant to be subject to government authorities. And so we have to almost ask ourselves, what would um, believers look like uh, if we didn't have the the commands of Scripture to submit to our government authority? We would, we'd almost be extreme zealots. We would be constant revolutionaries. We might resemble the purest forms of Islam, which... Uh, the most conservative forms of Islam, most conservative forms of branches have these realities where the end goal is control the state and uh, to always be at war with the infidel, with the unbeliever. And so in chapter 9 of Genesis, uh, where God is, is where God shares his sword with man. Just to read the uh, relevant verses in chapter 9, starting in verse 5. And your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, uh, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God is, um, God made man in his own image. God is, so God establishes at that time a system by which uh, man can, he can use man to uh, carry out his justice, carry out his judgment. And it's actually because, as that last verse, the last line in that verse makes clear, because he respects the image of God, because he carry, uh, has such value for it. And so Genesis 9 is written where there is an imperative that man should give punishment to those who are murdered. And um, that doesn't mean any time somebody dies, Israel had a system where they had ideas sort of like manslaughter, uh, where there were certain things that weren't actually classified in murder as murder, even if it resulted in a death. But that is the covenant. And um, that's also why the covenant sign of Noah is the only one that isn't contained in a church. Everybody can see the covenant sign of Noah. Um, any unbeliever, if we have a rainbow in this valley, can see that. To, to see a baptism, you usually have to come in within the doors of the church unless maybe uh, that we're doing outdoor baptisms at a location. But you, have to, you have to meet with the congregation of the Lord to see that. To, uh, you know, to have the Lord's Supper, you have to be with the congregation of the church. To see the covenant sign of Noah is just to go outside and to see it on occasion. Um, it's, it is a general thing. However... Where do we see the ultimate sign of this uh, consummation? Where is the sign of the covenant, the rainbow, uh, last seen in Scripture? Um, it's a scene in Genesis, I mean, Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. When John is seeing the throne of Christ, he sees a rainbow above the throne of Christ. Because Christ ultimately will engraft all the nations and be ruler of all the nations. Uh, that we will, where we will live in our monarchy. Because the Bible is not a democracy ultimately. We're not running towards democracy. We're running towards a monarchy where our king is Christ and he is risen. And so, uh, John, he depicts in 4-3 of Revelation, the rainbow above, uh, of Christ's reign. That's where he is seated below the rainbow. So find his fulfillment in him. So shifting back to Romans uh, 13, um, what is 
when we start reading about how, let me do this, um, how every person needs to be subject to the governing authorities, there's no authority except God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Um, ultimately, this is something God has given to us for our improvement. It's, it's better that we have this. Um, but also, uh, with verses 2 and 3, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists that God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Uh, would you have no fear of the one who has authority? And do what is good, and you will receive his approval. It's helpful to understand when he's calling authorities good, Paul has not first off forgotten about the cross. Um, Paul has not temporarily blacked out and forgotten how Christ was sentenced to death under Pontius Pilate. The cross, um, as a political act, was the most unjust political act of all time. No one would have, uh, no one will have a case in heaven that they faced a more unjust abuse of political power than Christ himself. Uh, there's a litany of acquittals in scripture. In Luke 23, 4, Pilate says, I find no basis for the charge against man. Continuing on, Pilate says later, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning the things which you accuse him. Pilate, this is all just the gospel of Luke here. Pilate says again, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. And Pilate uh, says, I have found no reason for death in him. So Pilate constantly proclaims Christ as as innocent. Uh, One of the criminals, of course, crucified with Christ says, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Um, The Roman centurion at the cross says, certainly this was a righteous man. Um, so the state does fail. Paul's point is not to, he's not contradicting scripture. Um, he understands there are gross political abuses throughout, uh, history. Our nation, of course, has its own political abuses, uh, throughout history to Native Americans, to slaves, to Japanese internment, internment camps. Um, our own nation, which, uh, uh, there's obviously lots to appreciate about this nation that we've, uh, been given the opportunity to live in, also has uh, great injustices still carrying on to this day. Um, and so what Paul is trying to convey, though, in these verses in 1 through 7 is the fact that in the grand scheme of God's ordained plan, uh, this is a better thing. It is better for us to have governments than to have no governments at all. Um, one of the quick things to ask ourselves then is, are there any exceptions or what are the exceptions on when we can resist government? Um, uh, remember, Paul is with Luke as Luke wrote at the book of Acts. We know that through the end of the book of Acts. And he knows, for example, Acts chapter 4, verse 18 and 20, and also Acts chapter 5, uh, 27, 32, when Peter made clear, even though he's been uh, in prison and suffered, um, and the ruling authorities are trying to stop Peter from, from preaching uh, the gospel that he is bound to resist such laws, that such laws have no place um, for him. And so our church, the, the church visible proper, the church visible that um, finds its uh, conformity to the word of God, it tries to be a faithful witness to the word of God in the world, um, has this same reality still today. We have areas like um, same-sex marriage where uh, we can offer 
the individual with uh, same-sex attraction, the gospel, but um, that does not mean the, the church can participate in marrying individuals with that desire to marry. Or another instance is, um, you know, the liberal denominations have advocated for things like abortion, which is uh, obviously awful. We can offer the gospel to the woman who's had the abortion. Um, Christ is sufficiently paid for her sins, but the, the, the church cannot um, overlook or commend just because there is a legal law by our government uh, such such acts. Um, great illustration of this is in the early church uh, in the city of Ephesus. There was a law that within the Roman Empire that if in a couple first couple of days, if you, you could throw away your child, you could throw them into the trash, you could let them die of exposure. And uh, the, in the, especially the city of Ephesus, we have good historical accounts of the Christians. Um, they would monitor the trash heaps and they would take out the children um, that uh, that were left to exposure and they would adopt them. And it became a, uh, a beautiful means by which the church grew and a beautiful witness in Ephesus of the gospel itself and of what it's it's disagreeing with po- the political climate of the day but it's doing so in a way that glorifies Christ. Um, and this also doesn't mean that our leaders will always um, serve our need, means uh, Christ himself in Luke chapter 18, uh, the first, first eight verses. He uh, talks about the woman who had to pester the judge. You know, he, the judge was ignoring her and she had to go over and over and over and over again. And so that that's just a reality. Um, sometimes our state is going to disappoint us. Um, now, moving on. In 13.4, this is one of two times Paul in Romans uses the word sword. Does anybody remember the, the first time he uses sword? And what's the irony in that? First time is in chapter 8. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Not even the sword, Paul says. And the irony, of course, is um, here the sword is used that the, the state holds the sword, that nothing can separate us from the love of the sword, and yet how does Paul die? What? Yeah, the sword cuts his head off. The sword of Rome ends up cutting his head off in about 67 AD. Uh, he will um, be wrongly judged by the Roman authorities who will sentence him to death and death he did not deserve. And yet, of course, the the letter of Romans in chapter 8 makes it clear that that sword, even though that Rome wielded that power in abusive fashion, that couldn't separate him from the love of Christ. Um, and so it's, it's, it's sort of a beautiful reality that the two times that sword appears in this, in this letter um, appear in this way. Um, and it also would have been, again, the reality of many of the people who would have first read it. Paul would have not been the only person that had this reality. Um, so when it comes to also the pre-exilic prophets of the Old Testament, they can become helpful in understanding Romans 13 and, and, and governments because 
Um, who were the two major empires before the destruction of the te- first temple that God uses to judge a lot of nations? They're Assyria and Babylon, right? And yet throughout all those pre-exilic texts, it is clear that two nations you really don't want to be are Assyria and Babylon because he also will judge them. Assyria, which held power for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in that region, dominated the region, one of the longest lasting empires uh, of that region's history. They were wiped out in a day, pretty much. They were wiped out quickly. And then Babylon, New Babylon, not the Hammurabi's Babylon, but a Neo-Babylonian empire becomes the power. And who destroys them in a day? Persia destroys them quickly. Quickly overnight, God carries out his judgment upon them as well. Um, And so that helps us understand that in the midst of governments functioning, God is not saying, I approve of everything in this government, but I will use their sword for my purposes. Um, uh, I always think of, I think one of the most important verses in scripture is Joseph when he's betrayed by his brothers. And he says, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And God is capable of doing that with government. And even, even what they use uh, for evil, uh, he, can, he, uh, he can use for good, ultimate good, because he has uh, sovereign power. When Paul states then in uh, chapter 5 of this, uh, verse 5 of this chapter, uh, he says, therefore, and he says that we have uh, he comes up with this idea of obedience for the sake of consciousness or conscience, uh, sake of conscience. And the sake of conscience here is, that he's referring to is the fact that believers understand that uh, God ultimately um, has a providential ordering of human history that the Lord can give, the Lord can take away. And so we... Uh, we're not just submitting to the government as in pure practicalities or because they currently hold the power, but God is at work in whoever our leaders are. Uh, both verse 1 and verse 5 of this section um, emphasizes the being subject to authorities. And then in 13, 4 through 6, uh, Paul invokes three times the idea of being a servant. Uh, one of those will probably be translated minister in your text there. There are two different words for servant there, but um, he's invoking also three times the idea that um, they are servants of also carrying out God's will. Um, their work, God is working through them. And uh, yeah. Now, when it comes to the closing verses of this section of politics, um, verses six and seven, we move on taxes, which would have been something that people universally uh Hated. Paul's world is no different than ours in that regard. Actually, um, in the city of Rome, we know during this time they were having tax revolts in the city. And so part of this instruction for the original audience is don't participate in those tax revolts. Don't be a part of that. Um, um, they, there were riots in the street on taxes because the emperors continued to escalate. Uh, taxes for their building projects um, and uh, to outdo one one each other. Also, though, Christians, um, if you remember Harold Camping and the people who bought into Harold Camping's um, 
you know, we're all going to be raptured in the church on October uh, 21st. And the only reason I know it, because it was a fellow my wife's birthday, at like 6 p.m. Eastern, uh, Western time. Um, and I only know that because we held a party. It started at 6.01 at our house um, for all the people who weren't raptured. Um, everybody showed up. Uh, but there were, there were ideas, and we noticed in the book of Corinth, that Christians were checking out of society. They were checking out of the world. Um, they were uh, so occupied with the idea that Christ is coming back soon that they weren't paying their taxes. They were uh, not uh, necessarily honoring their commitments uh, to the, even their wives in Corinth and such. Um, they were they were checking out. Uh, Paul is also in 6 and 7, in one sense, speaking to those issues as well uh, for the original audience. Um, <clears throat> so to close out uh, the first seven verses, which... Many commentators wish wasn't in scripture. You know, we have we have the Lord, of course, who said, uh, "Give to Caesar what is Caesar, um, Caesar's." Uh, but we have to understand that we can see the good even in uh, government and justice. We stand more in confidence today because Paul was willing to go to death, um, even though. Uh, the Roman authorities unjustly sentenced to death. Does that make his proclamation, does that give us greater confidence in the faith that we have? Does it give us greater confidence that Peter was sentenced to death by the Roman authorities? Does it give us, of course, ultimate salvation, that Christ was sentenced to death um, as a ransom for us in our sins? And so um, the answer is absolutely yes. That God um, has used governments in order to more firmly establish the church, the, the testimony of the witnesses, and also ultimately to provide us the salvation. He's used government to do that and to secure that. And we look forward to the day, once again, looking to Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, where Christ, the throne of Christ, and we get to view, see him and be made like him. Um, and we see him on his throne with the, uh, under uh, the rainbow. Uh, the, and uh, so, yeah, with that, before we shift on to really quickly to the end of this chapter, any questions on politics or thoughts? Harold Camping, um, it would have been about seven years ago. Yeah, yeah, seven years ago. Yeah. By the way, his, I've worshipped with his children before. None of his children bought his idea. Um, and they're actually, they're all reformed. And uh, the wife also repented and she bought into her husband's teaching until um, yeah, until about 6.01 on October 21st of seven years ago. Uh, so yeah, yeah, she, uh, she ended up repenting too. Uh, they, used, they used to attend the OPC church up in Reno that I would go to uh, quite a bit um, when they were in town. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it has. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, but we still all individually pay taxes or what have you. But yeah. Um, but yes, they have have granted status, uh, obviously, to uh, churches and 501c3s. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. If you have a you have a free willing God, th- this chapter really has some issues. Uh, but the, Paul and Paul in these first seven verses has in mind a God who is very sovereign, uh, the God of again Romans, uh, Romans eight, where nothing can separate us from the love of the Lord. No schemes of uh, even when when governments like Nazism. Uh, or Stalinistic Russia, or even at times uh, can participate, our own, participate in things that are just utterly wicked and utterly depraved, um, that uh, still God is using them uh, for his glory, what they mean for evil. God uses for good, can use for good, and, and use for his good. Um, any other kind of just questions before we close out? Okay. Um, now in Romans uh, 13.8, it basically says that, uh, um, let's see, where is he? Oh, I was looking at the wrong chapter. Oh, no one anything except to love one, to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Um, it's God saying, don't take loans. Now, God isn't saying that a Christian can't take loans here. Um, Christ himself in Luke chapter 7 talks about uh, uh, money lenders and loans and doesn't uh, do that. But Paul, uh, while he doesn't forbid the Christian from ever incurring debt, however, um, he encourages here the Christian to make sure they repay their debts um, and be prompt in that. And that is an expression of our love. Actually, verses 8 through 10 are all kind of unified together in the fact that there is this concept of let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt you have to love one another, to love your neighbors. Let that be your guiding debt in your life. The fact that ultimately um, uh, your, your, uh, your debt is to love your neighbor. Um, and then Paul in, in uh, 13, uh, 9 through 10, he's giving uh, special prominence to the idea of loving your neighbor. And one thing to appreciate is for the Jew, for the classic Jew who does not end up becoming a Christian, the idea of loving your neighbor was not something you held in prominence. It was yet another command. They saw it as like a command, just like do not murder. They didn't see see it as this idea of the summary. Um, uh, you know, uh, when Matthew, uh, when Christ in Matthew 22, chapter 22 says that the, the law, this law is on which all the prophets hang. That's a summary that would have been foreign to the Jew. And Paul is making that uh, understood here, um, that ultimately love fulfills the law. Stop worrying about um, specifics of the law. If you understand that you owe a debt of love, um, that helps fulfill the law. Um, and then in verses uh, 13, uh, chapter 13, 11 through 14, Paul is closing out an exhortation which began in 12... 1 and 2, uh, which uh, Paul covered last week, Paul Forrester covered last week. Paul urges Christians to give themselves as living sacrifices at the beginning 
of this section, keeping with the new era of which they belong in. And then in 13, 11 through 14, he exhorts the Christians to clothe themselves with Christ himself. And so um, the 12, 1 and 2 encourages Christians to look in the present in light of the past redemption of Christ. And now at the end of it, Paul shifts us in perspective to uh, look to um, our present condition and the future as well, the future promises. So, um, and Paul in these, in these verses really trying to hammer home the idea that we have woken up from this period of darkness, that we are beginning to see this new rising light in front of us and this new restoration. And, and also Paul in these final verses has this uh, strong idea that salvation, we, we as, you know, I say, I, people ask me when we were saved, 19, you know, I was saved at 19. That's when I became, you know, the Lord blessed me with belief and, and faith upon him. Um, and yet, I really, in one sense, Paul always has in mind our consummation, the ultimate salvation that we have uh, in Christ. And so the, the twofold job for the believer in the here and now is uh, ultimately when we look at the entirety of these two chapters together, uh, to love our God with all our heart and soul, with our mind and strength, and the second, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so these two chapters really give us a summary of what, how Christ summarized the law and how Christ summarized our walk. Um, basically, don't live as if Christ hasn't come, um, which especially verse 13 hones in on, as if the resurrection hasn't taken place, that we haven't tasted the kingdom of God. Um, but live as that we have tasted the power of Christ and we have experienced it. And so let's do stop doing things that belong in the dark. Um, in chapter in 12 and 14, there's this idea of casting off the things that that we have that uh, are dark and and sinful and putting on them in 14, putting on Christ, put on his clothing, cast off your filthy rags, put on put on the royal robes of Christ. Um, and also, uh, just to kind of finish up with my final two questions here. This chapter of Romans concludes in a way that's very similar to what Keith covered, I believe, if I remember right, Keith covered uh, chapter 6, um, where the new man and the old man, where we have uh, Adam and the new Adam, the second Adam in Christ. Uh, there also is a lot of similar imagery about how we have left our old identity of being in Adam and darkness and now have uh, embraced the new man, Christ, the new Adam, and taken that on. And so the final thought, close out this section, is to embrace Christ, who through the Spirit provides completely for the victory of the flesh. Um, and uh, yeah. any questions or final comments? Sorry about Yeah. Well, I agree that we don't have it in us, but um, if you look at the Apostle Paul in his life, 
Sanctification for him looks like becoming understanding his sin more and more intimately and how desperate he is for a savior. That's why Paul, earlier in his life, in one of his first letters, can write that I'm the least of the apostles. That's 13 people we're talking about. He's comparing himself to 12 others. And he says, I'm the least of that group. And then before he dies in Timothy, uh, to write, when he's writing that personal letter, his final letters, uh, in this world, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. And that is what sanctification looks like. Sanctification is understanding how we need the royal robes of Christ more and more. And we have a deeper longing for those things. And so that is, that is ultimately, I, I would commend you for the fact that you don't see your royal robes all the time. Uh, because, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Zechariah chapter three is my favorite depiction of uh, of the royal robes of Christ being given to us, uh, and it's just a, if you have never read the book of Zechariah, read Zechariah chapter three. It's a it's a favorite of mine. I actually use it a lot of times when talking with Roman Catholics and such uh, to explain the idea that is nothing that our hands we can bring, but simply to uh, Christ, and uh, we cling. I know it's the cross, but um, to Christ we cling for our righteousness. Um, with that, let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the fact that uh, you are sovereign over all things. Please help us to trust in you, to, to further trust in the fact that even though this world, the things of this world are uh, not always as we would want or seem, that you have sovereignly ordained all these things to come to pass and are ultimately, they are dying out and you are being restored and renewed upon this world with the salvation of, of all sinners like us, um, of which we are. And uh, we thank you that we have the hope of salvation, that we have a final and ultimate authority who supersedes all the authorities of this world. And we just ask that uh, we live and walk in a way which appreciates the fact that you are enthroned on high as our Lord, and we are called to worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.